So good evening, everyone. Uh, it's a great pleasure for me to welcome you to this uh, LSE European Institute event on Euroscepticism and the future of European integration. And, uh, of course, it couldn't be more topical. Um, it's clear that Europe is at somewhat of a crossroads, uh, given you know, Brexit, which, of course, interests us a lot here, but also the various developments of the rise of Eurosceptic populist parties across Europe. I saw that very recently Macron even likened this to a sort of a civil war in Europe. And um, what should be leaders' response to, to these uh, various challenges and contestation of Europe? We've had uh, Kiefer Hofstad at this very stage telling us that, in a sense, the silver lining of Brexit is that this is now an opportunity for Europe to come together and become a proper European federal state. Uh, we also had uh, Donald Tusk commenting that, you know, actually federation is certainly not the answer to this specter of populism and breakup haunting Europe. I think uh, after today we'll see uh, what side the panelists are on. But both uh, Fahostad and Tusk may know a thing about uh, Europe and the European Union, but I don't think they know quite as much as our learned and distinguished panel here tonight. Uh, I'm particularly thrilled to, uh, that Catherine de Vries, a professor um, in politics at the University of Essex, has agreed to come here tonight to present the findings of her new book, which has the same title as, uh, as this event, Your Skepticism and the Future of European Integration. It's an absolutely excellent book, and you'll be able to buy it at a discount afterwards. I should have shown it, actually. It's in my handbag. I'll show it to you at the very end. Um, it has a great cover as well. And what she does there is really trying to understand, you know, the kinds of Euroscepticism, how it comes about, and why Euroscepticism sometimes leads countries and publics to want to leave the European Union and others not. But she'll tell that much better than I in her own words, and she will do that first off. But we also have other excellent distinguished panelists, our very own uh, Professor Simon Hicks, who is the Harold Lasky Chair of Political Science at the Department of Government here at the LSE. He has also written a book, well, several, but he's written one book that is called What's Wrong with the European Union and How to Fix It? So we know we will come home with all the answers uh, tonight, <laughs> which is always reassuring. Uh, and last but not least, we, have, uh, we are honored to have Tony Barker here, who is the Europe editor of the Financial Times, and I'm sure you all know that he's one of the very best uh, commentators on European affairs in the European Union. So uh, we're in for a treat. Uh, before we start, I just want to say, you know, try and turn your phones on silent, but also uh, you can have your phones on because if you're very tech-savvy, you can tweet lots about the event, and our hashtag is LSE Europe. Uh, so without further ado, I want to welcome Catherine to the stage to uh, present some of the main findings and arguments from her book. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Sara, and thank you very much for being here. Also, thank you very much for Simon and Tony, who I've known as well as Sara for, for many years. So to do this with, uh, I would say, friends. Uh, um, like-minded, but sometimes we also disagree, so that's good uh, to be here today. Uh, so I, uh, I spent some years writing a, writing a book. It's my first book, actually. And uh, it was a, a kind of a, a good but also lonely experience. So it's very good to be here and to share some of these, uh, these ideas. So the cover kind of also illustrates the argument of the book that uh, how people think about the EU is nationally framed. The EU we see here... Uh, 
a couple of, uh, of, uh, of, of balloons. And uh, they form a union, but they also are diverse, and I'll talk about that in a minute. And then, also, when I was writing the book, something happened, which is illustrated by that one balloon going up. It's not necessarily to say that, you know, it will all be great what's going to happen with Brexit. Balloons can only go up, right, in terms of that they have more air. But uh, there's also a little string, so, you know, how is it linked still to, uh, to, to Europe? We're going we're gonna to see. So I'm going to start off with a little thought experiment to illustrate a little bit of how we thought also as academics about public opinion in the EU. So this is a founding father, Jean Monnet, um, a founding father of the EU. And imagine that he would have fallen asleep in one of the kind of predecessors of what we now know as the European Union, the European Community for Coal and Steel, which of course was in the kind of industries and arguments where, there, where, where the war uh, was most uh, uh, pronounced, coal and steel, and there's where a lot of the cooperation started. So this was uh, somewhere in a room with a lot of men, white men, uh, and imagine that, uh, that Jean, Jean Monnet would have fallen uh, asleep. Um, so his first reaction will be one which is, wow, this is amazing. So a parliament, a court, decades of peace, right? The, the founding fathers of Europe, that was the main kind of goal to create cooperation and to create ties between states so there would be uh, peace and no longer uh, war. However, his sec second reaction may have been one, oh no, looking a little bit deeper. So there we see the refugee crisis and the Eurozone crisis are illustrations of that. Brexit, the fracturing of, uh, of, of membership, and actually the first time that, uh, that, uh, that one of the kind of big nations decides to leave this, uh, this union, but also two men on the top, that is uh, Salvini, so the, the, the leader of the Lega, which is a, a Eurosceptic party that did extremely well in the Italian election, where we thought, you know, last year, the 2017 elections, Eurosceptics didn't do as well as, as predicted. Uh, Salvini and later on, of course, also Orban, who actually is in government, and also not particularly known for his pro-EU stance, uh, did extremely well this year. Next to that is Thierry Baudet, which is the new version, for those of you who follow Dutch politics, the new version of, uh, of Gerd Wilders. Gerd Wilders is already on his retreat. And we have a new entrepreneur who is one of the most vocal anti-EU politicians we've ever seen in, uh, in, uh, in Dutch politics and who's advocating an exit. Unlikely that's going to happen because the Dutch have, meanwhile, got rid of referenda. Uh, but uh, this is kind of uh, the, back, the backdrop of a lot of concern about the EU. So I started writing a couple of years ago with that, uh, with that in mind and trying to make sense of how uh, public, public opinion has, uh, has changed. So I said I wanted to mention this as an illustration of how academics have thought about the EU, the EU and public opinion. So one of the founding fathers of kind of EU studies, Ernst Haas, wrote a book, Uniting of Europe, and in that he said it was basically unnecessary to look at public opinion. What we needed was to see how elites in the member states thought about Europe because that's what allow us to understand European integration. Well, fast forward to now, and we, we realize that there's a lot of what one could call domestic constraints. So the public, who doesn't necessarily like the EU, either voices that in a referendum or in an election. Just to give you a sense of, uh, this is the 2014 European parliamentary election. Uh, here we see uh, all the different, uh, the different uh, country names, and here we see the, the vote share of hard Eurosceptic parties. So those are parties that uh, in their manifestos or in their uh, party material advocate an exit, uh, how, do, how well they did. And what you see is a stark difference. There's some countries that don't even show up in this, uh, in this map. That's Spain, for example, doesn't have a hard Eurosceptic party. But some other countries um, 
uh, there on the top that have very, very strong support for hardier skeptic parties. As I also show in the book that there is a link between the way you think about the EU and your reasons to vote for these parties. There, there might be other concerns, but, but, but your skepticism is, is, is a main concern for voters. And what I kind of tried to deal with in the book is why are there certain countries there? Why are there certain countries that you're skeptic and might there be other countries that don't even show up in this map? And actually, for scholars of EU public opinion, this map looked a bit weird because the way we thought about why people would support the EU is because they would understand that their country or their own pocketbook is benefited by the single market. Matthew Gobble, who is, uh, who is in the U.S., very dear friend and, and, and wrote a marvelous book uh, on, on EU public opinion 20 years ago, his prediction was as long as there is a utilitarian benefit of, uh, of, uh, of, of integration, we're going to see support. But interestingly, what we see in this map, and we know that this is a proxy, uh, hardier skeptic party support for Euroscepticism, we see countries that are doing relatively well and that have weathered the Eurozone crisis relatively well, where Euroscepticism seems to be on the rise the most. That's exactly the opposite of what uh, Matt Gobble predicted. So actually in countries that are reaping the benefits of European integration and that have actually weathered the Eurozone crisis extremely well, we see, we see the starkest rises in Euroscepticism. And the question is a little bit why. So that's what the book uh, tries to address. So I wrote about 250 pages. I didn't think that that was possible, but I did do that anyway. Um, but the, the, to kind of illustrate 250 pages in like a couple of slides is difficult. So I kind of started to highlight rather than kind of make the entire argument of the book is to kind of highlight some of the key findings in the Q&A after. We can definitely discuss more. So I think one of the most important findings and that illustrates kind of the, the, the thing I said before that you see countries that are doing relatively well well, so France, Denmark, Italy, well, northern Italy, there's a big difference between northern and south of Italy, Sweden, Great Britain, the Netherlands, and Austria, is that what I find in the book, actually, is that Euroscepticism is somewhat of a luxury good. You have to be able to afford Euroscepticism. It develops in contexts where people perceive that the exit option to membership is viable. And how do people benchmark, as I, I, I talk about in the book, if the exit option is viable, by how well the country is doing today? So if a country is doing well economically, and if a country is high quality of government, a low corruption, uh, policies are, 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 are perceived to have been produced fairly well, that actually people are not attributing that to the EU, as Matt Gabel would have highlighted. You see that the free market, you're doing well, you attribute that to the EU, but they're attributing that to the quality of their national politicians. So actually they think that their country is doing better than, than, let's say, the EU average, and that gives actually, that fuels Euroscepticism. So in that way, what we've seen is the rise as the Eurozone and the refugee crisis unmasked big differences between member states, richer countries, especially in the Northwest, started to, started to understand the EU as, as a way that was holding them back, whereas in the South, because of the enormous problems that, 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 that were that their countries were, were affected by, and they attributed to the low quality of their local politicians, they actually saw the EU as, as, as kind of gaining something, as, as a lifeboat in this process. So your skepticism as a luxury good. Then the second thing, and that's also very important, there's no such thing as a Euroskeptic. Well, the book is called Euroskepticism. <laughs> it consists of different types. So what I show is that you have some types that are consistently... Uh, you're skeptic both in terms of 
the policies that the EU produces and in the way that they perceive the regime, but there are also mixed types. So some people who are more ambivalent, they like, for example, the EU in terms of its policies that it produces, but they, they criticize the democratic deficit in the European Union. Or the other way around, they actually like the institutions, but they have uh, certain worries about uh, policies that the EU produces. And this is important, as I show, because only one particular type, those that feel that the EU both um, um, is, is, is kind of not doing well or is not serving their interest, neither in terms of policies or regime, exit skeptics, as I call in the book, they show a potential to vote for hardier skeptic parties and to vote uh, um, for secession. The Brits have been, in the, on average, in the exit your skepticism category uh, in the way that I show in the book since about the, the mid-2000s. So in that way, you can kind of get a sense of, of, of where, you're, where there's a most kind of um, uh, 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 worrisome levels of, of Euroscepticism. Interestingly, the other country that's close to that is Sweden, so we'll see what happens. Um, thirdly, only certain of these types are worrisome. I, I discussed that already. Exit skeptics uh, are most likely to vote for these hard Eurosceptic parties, vote for a referendum that are out, that, that, that constitute a problem for integration. Yet what I also show in the book, that regime and policy skepticism, so becoming skeptical of, of the system and the democratic deficit, for example, and, and, and becoming skeptical of the policies that the EU produces are a route in to exit skepticism. And actually what I show in the book that nowadays in, in, in uh, 2015, uh, which is the last uh, point of data that I have in the book, that actually the majority of populations within or publics within Europe are either in the exit policy or regime skeptic stance. So this is important and the EU should take notice. And the fourth finding is that your skepticism reflects national experiences. So as I already said in the, in the first point, it's kind of a luxury good. It develops in context where, where people perceive that, that an exit option is viable, that the way in which their country is doing affects how people perceive the EU and what they think their country gets in the EU also, again, reflects how they perceive their national governments. And these kind of national experiences, so for example, the Eurozone or the refugee crisis, have, left, have led also to a development of regional fault lines, wherein southern member states, for example, even though they didn't like some of the policies coming out of the EU, but they didn't feel that there was a viable exit option, start flocking together as a bloc, but you see the same in Eastern Europe and Northwestern Europe. So because there are shared national experiences, certain member states that look more alike others, you also start seeing a development of regional fault lines uh, in, uh, in the Eurozone and the refugee crisis. And I think fifth, and that's the very most important thing, is that the public is paying attention. So at a time where the EU needs to deliver because people are increasingly wary about the policies, about the regime, about what the EU is producing, uh, people are actually responding to a lot of information that they're getting from Europe and are responding in much more of a way than they did in the past. So this idea that public is no longer or is not so much a relevant factor for integration uh, no longer um, is the case. So that's, those are kind of the key findings, and I, 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 I use a lot of experimental data and survey data to, to, to come to those 
findings, let's say. So I guess what I wanted to kind of end on, and that's the, the second part of the title, which is the future of European integration part, is that what I then argue in the, in the, in the kind of conclusion of the book, that this presents a fundamental dilemma for the European Union. So what I just showed and what I argued is that the demands that people have towards Europe, even if they might be Eurosceptic, are extremely heterogeneous. So it depends on where you live. It depends on how well your country is doing or how well you perceive that your country is doing. Is there a viable exit option or not? So these heterogeneous demands will require some response because actually people are paying close attention to what happens at the EU. However, what I also show in the book that proposals for dealing with this in a supranational way by, for example, getting a directly elected president or getting more European elections are absolutely not popular. Political scientists would often say, if we have heterogeneous demand and, and divides over money or over redistribution, we should you know, uh, put that into an, uh, into an election. The problem is that in, in the EU context right now, forming this kind of mechanism is really unpopular. So how can you deal with preference heterogeneity with the public that's paying attention that wants you to deliver, but the mechanisms to know which of those different demands is going to be the one you need to respond to is, is, is just very unpopular. And they also might risk domestic ratification failures that if you wanted to kind of change a treaty, you might end up not being able to do it because it just gets voted down. So solutions, I didn't want to nice only write a book that, that, that kind of outlines the dilemma and doesn't say anything about the solutions. Well, clearly because of these heterogeneous demands, a, no, a one size fits all is not going to work. Also, what I show in the book, that Eurosceptics in different contexts have very different concerns. Eurosceptics in the South are very concerned about redistribution and, and austerity. Eurosceptics in the North are very concerned about intra-EU migration. Eurosceptics in the East are very concerned about the, the way the EU is meddling, as they would say, with their, with their domestic sovereignty and, their minor and the way that they, they, they treat their legal systems or, or minority rights. So this none-size-fits-all approach is not going to work. So what I then argue in the book is that neither modeling through, because that, that basically is not possible if the public is paying attention, supranational solutions cannot really be done because they, they wouldn't find a lot of support, that there might be a middle road, and that middle road would be allowing for more flexibility and differentiation by, for example, exa agreeing on a common core, some core, core principles, but not uh, insisting on harmonization in these principles. And actually, in some ways, it would be a much fairer description of how the EU functions because about 40% are the estimates of current legislation is differentiated. So if the EU would champion that flexibility and differentiation as a strength of its system, rather than trying to always at least officially insist on homogene uh, homogeneity, I think uh, um, one could deal with some of these heterogeneous demand in a more effective way. So that's kind of some of the short summary and, and glimpse into the book. Um, we'll go straight to Professor Hicks now and his comments. Uh, if, you, if you like to yeah. Thanks, uh, Catherine and Sarah. It, I, you know, it's a fantastic book. Um, I'm going to talk about some broader issues related to Euroscepticism and how to understand them uh, from my reading of recent research on the determinants of, of Euroscepticism. Part of it relates to Catherine's work and part of it some, some of the things she's mentioned. I think the key debate, the jury is still out on how we really understand Euroscepticism. Um, on the one side, there's a group of people who think it's primarily about economics. On the other side of people who think it's primarily about culture. And if, if we eventually figure out which of these it is or what combination it is of these two things, I think then it, it leads us to different uh, normative proposals about how then we would think about fixing this. Um, so, for example, on the economic side, 
I think if we roll back to the 1990s, most of the research that looked at big aggregate patterns of European public opinion uh, said or argued that support for European integration was largely a fair-weather phenomenon. When the economy was growing, people thought that, oh, the EU's great, the single market's great, and when the economy's in the tank, they would uh, blame Europe, blame Brussels, and, and look to their national governments to look after them. Um, that also feeds into then much broader research that now in economics has looked at financial crises and how financial crises feed through to support for populist right parties. There's a recent paper um, that looks at financial crisis papers, uh, financial crisis going back over 100 years and shows that when there's a financial crisis, you get a lagged effect of five years, ten years, but in that period, you get rising support for populist parties on the radical right. And so what we're seeing now, in a sense, is no different to what we saw in the 1930s or even in the 1970s, um, where actually it's the economic determinism that really as shaping support, and this is a temporary phenomenon. So if, if the economy starts to pick up again, then this sort of support for populist parties will gradually erode. And we can go down to the individual level. So uh, uh, Catherine mentioned Matt Garble's research. There's plenty of others who, who've looked at this and shown that at the individual level, people who tend to benefit individually from the process of, of European integration or market integration globally tend to support it. I mean, it's pretty obvious. So, you know, economic elites, people with large economic endowments, high levels of economic skills, university degrees, for example, tend to benefit from these economic processes of globalization or European integration. And purely it's this economic determinism that's shaping people's preferences, um, not some deep underlying uh, cultural skepticism. And more recently, there's some great work by uh, two Italian political economists, uh, Italo Colatoni and Piero Stanig, and, and they have, have looked really at, at import shocks. So they've taken research from the U.S. that's looked at import shocks. Um, so for, you calculate an import shock in an area by saying, what is the volume of imports in a given year in a, of a particular product, and how many people are employed in a particular area in that industry? So if there's lots of car imports and a lot of people are employed in the car industry, you're going to get affected because those they're competing with you and gradually your production will go down. So they've calculated at a regional level what has been the import shock that different regions in Europe have faced, and it predicts really strongly support for populist parties. And in, actually in Brexit, it predicts it's pretty strongly support for Brexit in different parts of the UK. So the places in the UK that have faced more global economic competition and economic decline have been the ones who've turned to Eurosceptic parties, whether that's in Britain or whether that's in the continent at large. And actually, even if we roll forward right to the present, you can see that the uptick in economic growth in the Eurozone over the last two years has actually led to declining support for populist parties and growing support for European integration. So, in a sense, if you have this more economic determinist perspective, then the solution would be that the EU needs to focus on delivering growth in the single market, uh, you know, liberalising the services sector to generate growth, uh, and governments should focus on, on delivering more public spending, for example, to, to uh, create infrastructure spending. We should be borrowing and investing in infrastructure to sort of different, to, to decentralize that growth away from capital cities to different regions, particularly regions in industrial decline. And if we're able to do that, then actually this wave of Euroscepticism will start to subside. But on the other side, we've got plenty of research that says it's not about economics, it's really about culture. What we're seeing is a fundamental shift away from a politics that's about economic left-right, where people who are high-income-supported parties on the right, people who are low-income-supported parties on the left, people who are in favour of redistribution of wealth supported the left, people who are in favour of cutting taxes supported the right. 
That's old politics in a way. We're now in a world where politics is not about economics. Politics is about values. It's about a battle between people who have progressive, open, globalizing values and people who have more socially conservative, more closed, anti-immigrant, more nationalist, more, more uh, family values type, type values. And this is independent of of economics, independent of wealth, independent of class. It's much more to do with things like university education, much more to do with things like age. In fact, age and university education are now two of the biggest predictors of voting behavior in elections in many countries in Europe, in fact, just like it is in the US, not income and not class. And we're seeing a growing battle between between elites in capital cities, in globalizing capital cities who are benefiting economically but have these sort of progressive cultural values, and large parts of the rest of the country, whether it's cities in industrial decline or aging rural communities who've got more conservative values, who are mobilized by things like anti-immigration and mobilized by anti-elite attitudes um, and, uh, and, and are mobilizing against the sort of cultural values that we've been seeing becoming more progressive over the last 10, 15 years. If this is the case, if it really is then about culture and identity, then Euroscepticism is much harder to fix because then it really is about national identity, about vastly different values in different regions or communities and vastly different values between different countries. And so, in a sense, you know, ultimately, Britain joined purely for economic interests, but actually we've left because of cultural interests. When we joined, we were the basket case of Europe. It was about economic. We wanted to be part of the economic mainstream. The European economy was growing faster than us, and so it was economics that our preferences about European integration shifted because of economics, yet ultimately the real drivers of why we left are really culture. So it's, I don't know whether ultimately it is about cultural economics. And there's kind of interesting research that tries to look at the interaction between these things. And as social scientists, a way to think about this is, are cultural values pre- or post-economic treatment? So, in other words, you have this economic shock, which in a sense, like a lab experiment, is a treatment. You have a shock or an economic shock or an economic crisis, and then we observe that culture matters, and suddenly culture gets mobilized. And if you're in the world of of Calatoni and Stanig, you'd say that this is an import shock, and they've done research to show that places that have had an import shock suddenly come out as anti-immigration, even though it's got nothing to do with immigrants. They've got this import shock, but you get a value shift as a result of this rapid industrial decline, even when they haven't even got immigrants in those areas. In fact, many parts of the country that have lots of immigrants are not anti-immigrant because they're carrying on growing. So they would argue still it's about this, the, the cultural value shift came after the economic treatment. But then there's other research that says that actually we can go back deeper in history and look at how deep cultural values in different parts of Europe are determining people's preferences now. There's a lovely paper by Fielding in the British Journal of Political Science where he looks at how whether there were towns that had Jews in the Middle Ages are big predictors of whether these towns have positive attitudes towards immigrants now. So this is a sort of long legacy of places that were culturally pluralist several centuries ago and have a kind of legacy of that throughout history, and they're pretty culturally pluralist now. And the two things are remarkably correlated. So there's, there's a sort of cultural determinism that is pretty strong throughout history. So I think the jury is out. I think if, if it is ultimately about economics, then we can fix these problems. And Euroscepticism, we're just seeing a wave because we've had the deepest economic crisis across a vast number of countries in Europe that's lasted a really long time. I mean, it's the longest and deepest crisis we've had in economics in, in the post-war period in many countries in Europe. And that 
that perhaps is what is explaining your scepticism. But if ultimately it's really about culture and cultural differences, then I think the European integration project is, mu is much in much deeper trouble, and we may see Brexit as the beginning of an unravelling of that project. Thanks. Thank you, Simon. And last but not least, Tony Barber. Thank you, Sarah. Um, hello, everybody. We should keep in mind that the European Union's future will be shaped not only uh, by Europe itself, but uh, in no small measure by geopolitical and economic events and trends beyond the EU's borders. I'm thinking of the uh, shift of financial and economic power towards Asia, the rising influence in world affairs of China, the truculence and unruliness of Russia and Turkey, the conflict over Ukraine, violence, instability and demographic pressures in the Middle East, North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, questions about the U.S. willingness to act as the protector of a liberal democratic transatlantic order, questions about the endurance of law-based democracy as a political order in competition with more authoritarian regimes and intolerant ways of thinking, and last but not least, the uncertain social impact of the application of the latest advanced technologies. Now, taken together, these trends could have various consequences for Europe. On the one hand, they could prompt the EU to act in a more coherent, collective way in defense of its values and interests. There's nothing like the instinct of self-preservation to galvanize action. And you may recall Angela Merkel's comments a year ago the times when we could completely rely on others are to an extent over. And one might deduce from her remarks that the times when Europe will do something are to an extent here. But I don't wish to sound cynical. Uh, the, EU's exit, the, U the UK's exit from the EU might indeed encourage more joint action, though it is unlikely to be uniform across all 27 countries. Uh, Brexit will leave the, the, EU, the, the non-Eurozone states more isolated and without their champion at the EU table. And in principle, that opens the door to closer Eurozone integration as a flagship EU project. Over time, Brexit could also give the EU a less economically liberal profile, leading to more elaborate business and financial regulation, more harmonization of tax policies, and so on. And you might end up with a more compact, resilient, if arguably less outward-looking EU. And that would, might be in line, some would say, with uh, President Macron's promise of une Europe qui protège, a Europe that protects its citizens against the injustices of globalization, the cruelties of corporate tyranny, and other threats to what he last week in Strasbourg called European sovereignty. That speech, by the way, uh, contained no fewer than 11 uses of the words protect, protective, and protection. I don't think that was a coincidence. Like other European leaders, uh, President Macron knows that millions of European citizens feel today as if they are under siege from various malign external threats deemed to be eroding Europe's distinct way of life. And in years to come, such anxieties might generate a stronger sense of interdependence among EU policymakers and societies. 
After all, history shows that new political models, new identities and new commonwealths often emerge in response to physical danger, not to mention outright violence. And this was Western Europe's experience after two world wars and during the Cold War. But no one, I think, would predict the eradication or even slow erosion of national, regional and local identities in Europe. Uh, all I'm saying is that grave external shocks might strengthen a European sense of having enough in common to justify a more positive energetic approach to acting in unison. All that might happen, but on the other hand, it might go in a different direction. And the essential point to keep in mind here is that there are deep fault lines in Europe over, over whether, when, and how the EU should act. And these divisions are between states, within societies, and inside national political systems. And that makes the divisions exceptionally difficult to overcome. In numerous EU endeavors, the search for a broad intergovernmental party political and social consensus across 27 countries is painfully elusive. And in some fields, the search appears to be doomed almost from the start because someone or other, one state, a group of states, half a society, several societies, many political parties, uh, is always going to be aggrieved. Once upon a time, such fault lines barely existed because what went on in Brussels wasn't a battleground on which popular politics in EU member states was fought over, and governments could and indeed did intensify their cooperation in an EU framework without risk of a backlash. The political classes were broadly united behind the European ideal and most citizens were either not paying much attention or genuinely supported the efforts. But all this changed with the controversies over the Maastricht Treaty, the abortive constitutional treaty in the early 2000s, and then the bank and sovereign debt crises and the refugee and migrant emergency. And now the, these disputes over, e, over EU policies are woven into the fabric of, of every national political debate. Uh, the most glaring division, as, uh, as Simon, I think, uh, mentioned, uh, and it's also it's President Macron's view, is between those with an open liberal internationalist outlook uh, and those who are offended by such habits and ways of thinking and are more socially conservative. But the division is essentially a matter of values, not one of relative prosperity. And these are the political and social splits that characterize the voting in France's presidential election last year, Italy's recent parliamentary elections, also the Austrian presidential election of 2016, the Czech presidential election in January, uh, and of course Brexit and Donald Trump's victory. So what we see is that in Europe the rival camps are coalescing into a pro-EU EU centre by and large in favour of internationalism and a dose of more EU integration where required. That's them on the one hand, but on the other hand, you have various hostile forces of the radical nationalist right or the far left or just anti-establishment movements in general, uh, which are each in their own distinctive way, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, anti-globalization, sometimes Russophile, and as a rule, critical of the EU. Now, I suspect the contest between these two camps is set to continue indefinitely because it's no longer possible 
in, for Brussels to portray policymaking credibly as some technocratic administrative exercise that should be insulated from the hurly-burly of national politics in each member state. Now, despite an economic recovery over the past couple of years, stagnant living standards, precarious jobs, and eroding social welfare networks are daily facts of life for millions of Europeans. With freedom of movement protected under EU law, there's been a steady flow of highly educated and less educated young workers from South and Eastern Europe to the North and West. Uh, and I was in, I was in Bulgaria uh, last December and uh, was told there that you know, not only has the population dropped by about one-fifth since the end of communism to uh, slightly over 7 million, but by 2050, uh, a lot of experts think it will be somewhere around 5.5 million, which, is a, which are very dramatic falls. So on the other hand, some Central and Eastern European states are coping better than others with the pressures of EU membership. The economies of the Visegrad Fora become increasingly locked into supply chains with big German corporations, and these have lifted living standards and generated well-paying jobs. But in terms of political standards, social values, and attitudes to national sovereignty Gaps are opening up between much of the West and much of the center and East. And that process has surprised and dismayed many of those who celebrated the fall of communism in 1989 to 91. Of all the internal trends that will shape the future of European integration, as opposed to those external trends I mentioned at the start, I think it's these West-East differences that will be among the most important in parts of the former communist world, democracy has taken some unexpected detours over the past quarter of a century. In particular, the affirmation of nationhood in countries that recovered their independence or gained it for the first time has by no means gone hand in hand with an affirmation of Europeanness as understood in Brussels or Paris or Berlin. At first it did, Think of the early solidarity governments in Poland or Václav Havel's presidency in Prague. But now, by contrast, many politicians and ordinary citizens in these countries look at Western European countries and see plenty to criticize. Multiculturalism gone wrong, racial tensions, religious strife, the lack of a single cohesive national identity. And they are no longer in awe of the Western European cultural and political model, which they think is not suited in many ways to their own history and tastes, and in any case, seems not to be working that well. As for Western Europeans, they look to the East and see political systems and societies supposedly riddled with corruption, organized crime, subversion of judicial independence, inroads into media freedom, and patriotism or nationalism of a kind that they like to imagine Western Europe moved on from long ago. They find it genuinely difficult to understand why voters in Hungary or Poland support uh, Fides or uh, law and justice, and they tend to attribute such support to inexperience with democracy, civic immaturity, and vulnerability to demagoguery. But there is an obvious risk here of applying double standards. 
Western European democracies are hardly squeaky clean, a point of which I was acutely conscious in the five years I spent as the FT's bureau chief in Rome when <laughs> Silvio Berlusconi was prime minister. Uh, nor are Western European societies impervious to rabble-rousers and extremists, as will be clear to anyone who's watched Western European elections and referendums over the past decade. My point is not to pass judgment. It's to make the observation that for some Western Europeans, defects in democracy and the rule of law in parts of Central and Eastern Europe offer the perfect excuse to remake and reorder the EU in their own interests. There would be a new European house. And that house would, in principle, have its doors open to anyone who wanted and was deemed ready to join, but it would be Western European in design, origins, rules, and spirit. Of course, as long as the euro exists, any new Western European core could not be contiguous with the 19-nation eurozone. And that's the problem with all proposals or predictions that imagine the Europe of two speeds or 20 speeds or concentric circles or whatever. Who is in and who is out? Who decides? The best I can offer is that in some ad hoc, case-by-case -case way, the EU will indeed evolve into different crisscrossing groups and subgroups of cooperating countries. And more and more it might come to resemble the loosely confederated Holy Roman Empire of the 17th and 18th centuries, although probably with a more integrated core. And on this higgledy-piggledy landscape, Euroscepticism, in the sense of anti-EU sentiment, will be a permanent feature. Let me conclude with an image from European geography, or should I say geophysics. In my mind's eye, I picture Euroscepticism as Mount Vesuvius, which broods gloomily over the civilization of the Bay of Naples. Now, Vesuvius hasn't erupted since 1944, but below its crater, something is bubbling away. And who is to say it will never erupt again? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much to our panelists for this uh, inspiring intervention. I'm sure they've provoked many questions among you. I'm going to just kick off with one, and then you can all think about what you'd like to, to ask our distinguished panel. And, and uh, my question really is, a, I was a little, I was uh, sometimes a little provoked by this um, contrast that, that um, Simon Hicks so eloquently described between sort of culture on the one hand and economics on the other. And especially because I think we as the three of us here as political scientists, I think it leaves out the politics. And I think what, what Catherine, as I read it, and you will correct me, really does in her book is to say that when we look at Europe as citizens, we really look at it through the lens of national politics and compare. And, and that's really the essential, what they leave out, the sort of many of them economists who want to have this one predictor that fits all, that citizens don't just look at, oh, you know, what is my economic situation? They look at, well, can Europe or my own government, for example, Berlusconi, deliver better. And then it might be that, oh, you know, it's not great, but I don't think Berlusconi can do a better job, and therefore I am not so negative about Europe. Whereas if I'm a Dane, I'm a Dane, so, uh, so I'll use that example, I look at my own government and think, oh, maybe they'll do a slightly better job. And that means that a, a person hit by a similar sort of situation economically 
all having similar cultural attitude, will react very differently depending on the policy. So I think these big macro, uh, macro sort of explanations that are sort of one-size-fits-all across Europe really leaves out what I think Catherine has beautifully captured in her book, which is that we view Europe as citizens through our own national institutions and national economic situations, and that is really what shapes it. And that's why you know, Brexit might not have happened in another country in the same way because people really believe that Britain can deliver. Now we'll see whether it's the case. So that is my sort of provocation to sort of bring it together. Maybe, Simon, given that it was against you, will start, and then Catherine can have the last word. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I could have added the third dimension of politics, and of course it matters. And the way I think about that is... Uh, I think for a long time I thought about what explained people's attitude towards Europe was whether, if you think about politics as dominant, dominated by sort of left-right politics, um, whether or not you thought that the EU would move policies closer to you relative to your domestic preferences. So, for example, that was part of the reason why a lot of the left in Britain liked Europe, because they thought, as Jacques Delors said, you know, uh, in Brussels, we can reintroduce social policy that Margaret Thatcher is getting rid of in London, and the Trade Union Congress in Brighton starts spontaneously singing Frere Jacques. Um, uh, whereas, if you're in, in, so from Britain, the EU European integration looked like you know reimposing uh, regulations and rules that, that we were, were liberating here, and that, then the left was obviously pro-European, and the right was more anti-European. You flip that round in France, and um, the EU, European integration and the single market looks like a process of Anglo-Saxon liberalisation to undermine the, uh, the French state. Uh, and the right tended to be more pro-European than the left. And for a long time, that did a pretty good job of explaining you know, different countries' attitudes. The further you were politically away from the average, the more problems you had with the EU. So states that were more highly regulated didn't like the EU because the EU was liberalising them, and states that were more free market didn't like the EU because it was forcing them to become more regulated. So that worked pretty well. It doesn't seem to work so well now, and I think now we are in a world where, where national identity, as, as Catherine meant, uh, uh, articulates at the national level. I mean, I think the, one of the f- most interesting things in the book, I find, is, 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 the, is Sweden, because for a while I've thought about Brexit and what might be the implications of Brexit. In fact, of all the other member states that are most likely to be affected by Brexit, I also would say Sweden. And I think it is because of this deep cultural attitude or or national identity vis-a-vis the process of European integration. I remember being in Sweden and trying to watch uh, Swedish weather. And in Sweden, they say the same thing they do in Britain. They say, here's the weather in Sweden and here's the weather in Europe. And I think Sweden and Britain are probably the only two countries in Europe that actually do that. Everybody else said, here's the the weather in our country and here's the weather in the rest of Europe. So, you know, Brits and Swedes have a similar national identity. That, that It's a kind of, we joined European integration for purely instrumental reasons. We have this kind of arrogant legacy of empire and our own self-worth in the world, and we're far better than everybody else. And I think that's pretty similar for the Swedes and the Brits in that regard. I know that you're a Dane, so you probably agree with me. Uh, but... <laughs> But, you know, and then also after Brexit, what we're going to get is Sweden is next to it is Norway and, and the UK closely integrated culturally, closely integrated economically. So I actually do think that these deep national identity questions that are both political and cultural, I think, will, will determine the next phase of European integration. And so, you know, whether that's in Scandinavia or whether that's in Eastern Europe, and I think that may well, those two forces together may well point us towards would inevitably be a two-speed or two-tier uh, Europe as a result. 
Thank you, Sam. If I can just, Tony, bring you in here on the East and East-West, because, of course, when we talk about national identity and the way in which you described how Eastern Europeans, Central Eastern Europeans look at the West, it's certainly not because there's a lack of a sort of strong national identity, yet if we look at the data in terms of the sort of hard exit skepticism, we don't find that necessarily, and I think Catherine's explanation would be, well, that's because that the national alternative, you know, is not necessarily the same as it is in Northwest. I mean, what, do, you, do you think that's part of the reasons why Central and Eastern Europeans still do not want to necessarily leave the European Union, even if they're so critical of it? Yeah, that's probably right. Uh, um, I think uh, the one, one country I would, I would single out as a place where the, the kind of headline opinion polls suggest very widespread support for the EU is, is Poland. However, uh, it's not difficult to imagine certain circumstances in which uh, many, many polls, not just uh, politicians, but society more broadly, might feel that the EU was getting up to something that was strongly against the Polish mm. national interest. And because it's a large country, it would be possible there to feel the, the, the emotion of national sovereignty mm. and the right to defend your, your positions. Uh, you, I think I would watch that quite closely. But more broadly, um, I was thinking on my way here uh, on this point of... Um, is the most important thing, economics and, and technocratic administration. And the EU's kind of scientific approach to getting things right. And I was thinking, what would, Ed, what would Edmund Burke have made of this if he was walking along the Strand just now? And I thought, well, the first thing you'd do would be to go up to Catherine and say, what a great book. Because in some ways you're drawing on some of his ideas about, about uh, you know, economics, it doesn't answer everything. People are people motivated in their values and their political positions by emotion and by, by uh, passion. And this, this really, the, the lesson of the last 10 years or so is, it is that in spades for me. Um, and uh, uh, it, I, I think that the, the, uh, the genie is out of the bottle, so to speak, and the, the EU sh should, would be making a mistake if it tried to kind of... Re reconfigure itself as a purely technocratic uh, operation and it can do this well because you know, the credibility got busted uh, recently um, and that, that message I think might not resonate so much among newer member states that's probably true but um, uh, nevertheless uh, uh, the, the, the message is, is, is there in the air for those to grasp Thank you. Catherine, do you want to? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so I think also a little bit and, and kind of like um, uh, summarizing something of, 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 of what was said before. So maybe just kind of prove it to the point. I think your skepticism is a per well, this will be a permanent feature of the EU. I think it's going to be there, and it's also part of the maturation of people of how they think about the EU. They've woken up, they have opinions about it, and they are, are willing to express them. Um, on the kind of Economic and culture, I, I, I've always just never understood 
why it needs to be economics versus culture. Yeah. And I, I, I've just never got that, and why it cannot be an interaction between those two things. And I'm just going to give an example, and my husband is there. He's Spanish, and we were – I say it also at the beginning of the book. One of the, the, the reasons for writing the book came out of one dinner conversation where I went and said, well, you're, you know, uh, unemployment has gone up so much in the Netherlands, and, and that explains where Geert Wil is, and your skeptic sentiment is going up. He's st- well, no, he actually didn't start laughing. He was the first time a bit just pissed that he said, I am Spanish. You're telling me that 7% unemployment is a lot? (laughs) And also the way that he thought about it, and I said, well, but how would people deal with that? And why are they not on the streets and dealing with, you know, 50% youth unemployment? Because we went through major areas, and my parents, of unemployment in the Franco regime. And the way in which people, that, that kind of is almost in the genes of people about what their national experiences were, how they have dealt with things, and how then also economic information is processed. So I do believe that economic information is crucial and that you know, shocks to the system can really matter, but the degree to which they're translated is ultimately going to be dependent on, on, on people's senses of what it means to be Spanish or Dutch or, 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 or even regional variation, and also the degree to which they have reference points. So part of the EU, I think, and there's been other work on that in more economic voting, is that people are able to benchmark not only within their country but across countries. So they realize, and that I think was also something that was struck by what, what, what Tony was saying, in the sense that we have to be careful with double standards because many, many East, or when I talk to many uh, uh, Eastern European colleagues, and especially Poles, they have the sense that they've been treated differently than the currently Austria and the dealings of the FPO, which are also arguably against uh, Aki rules. And that kind of idea of that we are treated as second-class citizens or something, and that kind of benchmarking not only within, you know, like seeing how your country is doing and then, you know, seeing how the EU is doing and then making up your, 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 your ideas about Europe, but also the idea about how you're doing relative to other member states and how much of the EU is sensitive to that, I think is also crucial. And, and my, my, kind of my worry is a little bit that we're often in this debate about either you're in or you're out or you're anti-EU or you're pro-EU, but these kind of more nuances and, and, and difficulties just get much less space. So, so, so that, again, is what, what the book kind of tried to, to, tried to focus on, uh, and I think it deals very much with what, and, and lines very much with what, what Sarah and Simon and, and, and Tony have said. Thank you. So I will open up the floor now to other questions to the panel, and I'll, I'll group them together. If you could please wait for the microphone and uh, introduce yourself before asking a question. So uh, we have a question here in the front, gentleman in the front. Hi, thank you. Uh, my, my name's John Yeoman. My question's on the uh, relevance of the euro, uh, because uh, my understanding is that when Hungary, Poland, and the Czech Republic, along with the others, joined the EU, that they were under some kind of obligation to eventually join the euro. And yet, of course, at the moment, they have got strongly euro-skeptic governments. And so my question basically is, to what extent, if at all, are those countries as well as Denmark and Sweden, under any form of pressure to eventually sign up to the euro? Thank you. And then there was a question of the gentleman there in the back. Thank you very much. My name is Philip Trein. Um, I have a question. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for a very interesting talk. My question concerns uh, some of the findings of the um, political science literature. 
Um, the research on federalism has shown that the confederations tend to fall apart in crisis very frequently. And, and it also has shown that institutional design is not something that is really working uh, very well. So I'm, I'm wondering what you, what you make of this and if there is not, uh, if there is not a limit to the one size, one size fits all and if uh, public opinion is not just a reflection of, uh, of the elite discourse and if elites would not have some kind of responsibility to actually shape, uh, actually shape some kind of, of common future and reforms. Thank you. And uh, there's a question, a gentleman up here. Um, John Strafford. Um, I'm surprised that uh, one talks about the future of European integration without uh, looking in some detail at the Eurozone uh, and the future of the Euro. Uh, because if they don't get fiscal and monetary union, the Eurozone's up the, up the swanee without a paddle. Um, and um, uh, there's no sign that Germany is going to pay the, the kinds of money uh, necessary to ensure that it does have that uh, union. Uh, and um, uh, uh, at a meeting I was with Mervyn King a couple of weeks ago, he said that um, uh, whether in or out of the uh, European Union, uh, the economic impact wouldn't be very uh, high for the UK. He also said that um, don't believe uh, any expert economist because they can't accurately forecast the future. Um, and it then comes to Pref Professor Hicks's point uh, about Euroscepticism and economics and, and culture. And the, the, the major factor is that people want to control those that are governing them. And there's no sign in Europe at the moment that they have learned that lesson uh, and, and given uh, uh, democracy back to the people. So those are the two major factors that I'd like your comments on, please. Thank you. And for this round, we'll take a final question from the lady up here. Yes, in blue. Oh. Hi, uh, Elaine Thais, University of London. Thank you very much for this talk. I suppose I would point out, provoke you all, one more omission from your lecture tonight is the role of law. And as a European lawyer, uh, one of the most studied phenomena in European law at the moment is the global reach of EU law. And irrespective of what political scientists and how you engage in reflections in the future of EU integration all over the world, in massive chunks of the world, parts of European law are being taken. And the argument goes to the effect that irrespective of Brexit or no Brexit, it, a market of 440-odd million people has a huge force as an economic power, whether Poland or Hungary, irrespective, that companies and businesses vote with their feet and take European laws. And it's a very awkward fact of the Brexit debate in particular. I'm, I'm used as a, an Irish person to uh, having to, to listen to, to have my views somewhat omitted from uh, about European mm -hmm. law debates, but it certainly is a very awkward far, part of the European uh, integration debate. Thank you. Um, so if uh, maybe, Tony, you'll start. You can address the points that you feel are particularly relevant to you. Um, well, to take that last point first, I mean, I, yes, I think it's um, sometimes uh, underplayed that the, the, the real strength of the EU on the, in, the, on, in global terms comes from its ability to, to, ability to act as a unified uh, actor in trade, trade policy. I mean, its voice counts for an awful lot. And the second thing, in, the, in terms of business regulation, and, we've, and we see this right now with everybody scrambling to prepare for the data protection rules. I mean, these, these, these 
originated, of course, uh, in, the, in the EU, and yet they have a worldwide impact. And then the ability also, which began, uh, I think, when Mario Monti was the competition commissioner quite some time ago now, uh, to hold some of the world's largest uh, international companies, often of US origin, to account and make them uh, abide by EU regulatory standards is, is uh, you know, that's real power. And we actually we've seen it in the case of Ireland and Apple just now. So I think I, I would I would agree with that point. Um, I'll only, I don't want everybody else to have a chance to say something. Very briefly on this point of the, the non-eurozone countries. I mean, there are huge anomalies here. I mean, Denmark does have the right not to be uh, a, a, a eurozone, but Sweden, Sweden in principle is supposed to join. But of course, it, it, it had a referendum, decided not to. And, and it's, it's the exception that uh, uh, um, nobody talks about it very much, but strictly speaking, um, it, it, it should be. As for the Central Europeans, um, well, I, I think as I alluded to in my talk with Britain leaving, they're going to feel more exposed, I think, because on all sorts of issues regarding uh, financial regulation, banking, issues and so on, um, th things are highly likely to be decided without their voice counting for so much with the Britain being out. Whether that, whether that would in, encourage them to seek faster Eurozone membership or even Eurozone membership at all, I'm not convinced by it. I mean, I think they all took a look at what went on from 2010 onwards and were utterly shocked um, and thought, yeah, that's not for us. There is one exception, which is Romania. And there, I think, the present government does seem to be... Uh, uh, more keen to join I think that that um, may reflect the, um, the the feeling that to be in is you know, rather like for the Baltic states it was almost a kind of geopolitical statement you know, the, 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 the more you're in the safer you are against uh, possibly uh, threatening neighbours Thank you Simon oh, A few things there one is the you know is the euro going to survive without fiscal and monetary union? I mean, many commentators, I think including Mervyn King, at the beginning of the eurozone crisis would have predicted it would have fallen apart already. Yeah. I mean, what is remarkable is it has actually survived. And although we haven't, yes, it's true, we haven't got fiscal union, the, the, the various pillars that have been put in place are quite remarkable. Banking union and the moves to banking union, I, I think nobody would have predicted. And, and, and the kind of moves to banking union in the, in the eurozone are not dissimilar to the type of thing the U.S. federal government did in response to the financial crisis in the 1930s in the U.S., um, you know, federalizing the banks in the U.S. European stability mechanism, the European stability fund, I mean, the resources involved in this are, are, are you know, eye-watering in terms of the size of the now bailout fund the EU has. And the ECB is a lender of last, effectively, a lender of last resort. Nobody really could have predicted that. And these three pillars are really very powerful pillars. And I think together they have really headed off what was a really very fundamental crisis for the Eurozone. I may agree, I agree with, with, with what Tony said about the Eurozone not expanding, but I wouldn't bet any money on the Eurozone falling apart anytime soon as a result of, of, of what they've done. As for people wanting to take back control and, or control who they govern, there are a couple of things. One, it depends whether you like your national governments or not, or not yeah. and this is you know, part of Catherine's point. You, know, you might say, yeah, Brits, we love the House of Commons. I can't stand the House of Commons, but a lot of people love the House of Commons, and, and uh, therefore they'd rather be governed by them than people in Brussels. I'd rather be governed by people in Brussels. But anyway... Um, uh, 
if you're, if you're Italian, then maybe you would rather be governed by Brussels than the people in Rome. And, uh, you know, so it depends. I think that's part of the point that, that, that Catherine's making. And, and equally, there's a tension here. There's a real tension between taking back control. And I think there is a kind of growing pressure across the world in response to globalization of European integration of people wanting to bring powers back, back to national governments, back to regional governments, back to city governments, and so on. And how can you reconcile that with a world which follows this legal logic of the fact that essentially the EU and the US, and it'll soon be China, are setting all of the global standards and all the global rules? Together, the US, China, and the EU27 make up around 50% of global GDP, around 50% of global trade, and the rest of us are all vassal states. I've got a student on on our MPA program whose dad is a beef farmer in, in Canada, and he told me that... In Canada, as a beef farmer, you have two fields. You have one field of cows destined for the U.S. market, where you apply U.S. agricultural rules, and you've got another cow set of field of cows destined for the EU market, where you apply the EU's rules. Mm. And uh, you have these big, fat, pumped-up cows destined for the U.S. market, and these skinny, vegan cows destined for the, for the EU market. And you know, Canada is a sovereign state and has taken back control. You know, so this is the tensions in this, this world we live in. It, it's not easy to take back control. What are we really taking back control of? And uh, you know, this is really difficult to, to reconcile uh, a, a world where powers are shifting away from us, largely to Brussels and Washington DC and Beijing, yet we want to bring back control. And that, that's, a, that, that's a real challenge. And I think it's partly references Philip's point about, about institutions and, and whether we can design institutions. What, what I think the EU should be doing is radically decentralizing. You know, I, I wrote a piece for, for, for a book on the future of Europe recently and argued that Europe should follow a model of re- radical policy, radical decentralization. In fact, the EU single market model is more centralized than, than the US market model is, in fact. There should be far more flexibility in the application of rules and regulations. It shouldn't be based so much on harmonization. We should be radically decentralizing tax-raising powers, decentralizing some of our regulatory powers, and so on. And that may be the way to come to reconcile this pressure for taking back control versus the reality of markets being regulated at a higher level. Thank you. And Catherine? Yeah, I know. I mean, that's I, I of course would fully, as I as I call flexible integration in the book, but uh, I would agree with that. And that also might be an easier sell for the public that it's kind of like this tailor-made solutions uh, to problems. Uh, with regard to the, I kind of two things I will, I will focus on, which is one about the, the caring about about who governs you, which is exactly what I find in one of the chapters, and then the the point about uh, about federalism and how it might fall apart in, in times of crisis. So I was kind of struck by. I, I didn't use it. I used the kind of thought experiment that I did before. But one of the thought experiments I also thought is if, if Angela Merkel, and I'm just saying it because she's the leader of the large, one of the most influential uh, uh, nations, would have said, we're all Greek. <laughs> right? So it's the fate of, of the EU, and we're all going, to, going to, to deal, and we're going to shoulder it underneath. But that was not the reaction. So what I find in, in the book, that people view the EU through the national prisms and attribute things to the national politicians, that's also how national politicians acted in crisis. It was very much about protecting own assets, protecting own banks. And only later on was there more open, you know, open space for, for joint solutions. Of course, there are national representatives and, and being elected in that way. But, of course, it is an interesting thought experiment. What would have happened if, if, the, if kind of solidarity would have been the, the first start? Maybe too much to ask. 
Uh, but in that way, it could have been a more constitutive uh, moment. could have also been that that would happen and then there would be a, a total backlash of, like, populist and, and redistribution, uh, you know. But, you know, I, I don't know. That, that, that's, that, that's, I think, uh, kind, of, kind, of, kind of the response to, uh, to you know, that, yes, federalism, but now we see that, that the one-size-fits-all, and we see enormous pre- preference heterogeneity, but could there have been something just in the wording and how it was done at the start of that crisis would have, which would have preempted some of that? I don't know. Uh, with regard to the that people care de- care desperately uh, who uh, who governs them, uh, that that's what I find, and I find also that that it doesn't really matter which type of Eurosceptic or or kind of yeah, I didn't talk so much about the the, the EU loyals uh, that are also in the book. They all care about that, and the the interesting element is that no matter what type of Euroscepticism or, or how how kind of pro EU you are, that moving more policy responsibility to the commission or introducing institutional kind of fixes like a directly elected president or these kind of things are, are totally unpopular. What people actually want is more national government control. And in that way, if you decentralize and if you allow for more flexibility, you can, you know, you can deal with some of those demands. I'm not saying that that's the solution forever, you could, but that could be a flexible fix to this. And maybe in the future when there's more demand for, 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 for supranational institutions, you move away again. But that's the very interesting element that some of the proposals that have come out, you know, I was quite struck by it. I don't know if the panelists agree, by the kind of uh, State of the Union speech of Juncker, which was like, this is a window of opportunity and we have until the next European parliamentary election. And, you know, support has gone up, which I show also in Brexit, because people saw that the alternative state to membership didn't look that good. But the interesting element is some of the solution he comes up with are deeply unpopular. And in that way, you know, like creating, you know, kind of a union by then pushing certain institutional solutions, which will automatically, I think, in 2019 or 2021 or 2022 create a backlash, is, is, is kind of worrisome for me. And I see f- there's a real disconnect about how this is discussed in Brussels and how this is discussed in domestic uh, capitals and among domestic publics. And I, I just think that there needs to be a way in which, and, and, and I think Simon and I very much agree on, on, on what would be a way forward for that. But those two sets of actors and publics need to come together. And in this way, it's, it's, and currently that's not happening. And that just worries me as someone who does, uh, I'm just going to openly say, just does would like to see this kind of set of institutions to, uh, to, uh, to you know, survive another 50 years as it's, as it's been doing. And, uh, and, and, yeah, that worries me. Okay, we'll take another uh, round of questions. There was a lady in white here in, on the balcony first. Thanks, Ulrike Franke. I work for the uh, European Council on Foreign Relations. I guess my question is for Simon Hicks, or at least it was prompted by what he said, because I, I keep wondering whether it's such a good idea that we keep saying this, is, this has become a fight between the more open um, people, so the liberals uh, who, who are advocating an open society, and those that are advocating for a close society. And I think it becomes particularly problematic when we start equating one of the sides to, well, education. Because you said that Asian education have become one of the biggest, uh, one of the best predictors for voting behavior. But if you say that and then do the open and closed, it, it starts sounding like you have the clever people that are in favor of an open society and you have the others. And I think, I mean, it's interesting because this has really been the this has really become the kind of the kind of way that we now 
describe politics much more so than, than left and right. But I think it's, it's, it's very divisive and there's a real danger of putting people in boxes where they don't belong. And not only that, I think it may also inhibit finding solutions to some problems because I would argue one could very well be liberal and, and, and have no problems, for instance, with Muslims and still say, well, maybe we should find a way of limiting immigration, for example. So ju just, just as a thought, because it, this really has become the, the way that we talk these days, and I think that that may become a bit problematic. Uh, the gentleman in the blue shirt here in the middle. Thank you. Um, so my question was, if, you, if Russia were integrated into the European Union post-Cold War, what do you think the European Union would look like now and what would Russia look like now? Thank you. See, that's what happens when you start with a thought experiment. Yeah, then you open the floodgates. Uh, the gentleman here in the back. Yeah, thank you. Um, just to clear a point, in 2004... Uh, ten new countries joined the EU, and the original 15, um, only three countries opened the door to immigration, and that was Ireland, the UK, and Sweden. And that's probably why in the UK and Sweden there's Euroscepticism. Um, but in, in Europe, we're plodding along with very slow growth. It's like 1% all the time. It's, maybe there's a few pockets of positivity. And in China, you have 8% plus all the time. Um, hasn't there been too many jobs transferred from... Europe to China, could they not have shifted them from Western Europe to Eastern Europe and build up those economies? Thank you. Uh, the gentleman in the blue shirt here in the front. Hi. Um, given that the EU, or at least parts of the European Union, notably the European Commission, want further centralization, harmonization, and integration, but we're seeing a backlash with regards to certain policy suggestions to do this. What do you think needs to happen for um, the EU High Command per se to say maybe it is time to start decentralizing and handing back some powers to nation states to prevent collapse of the EU in the future? And just a side question, if you had to bet £10 on any country to leave the EU next, which one would it be? Thank you. We call money on Sweden. The gentleman up on the balcony in a grey T-shirt, please. Thank you. Um, I was wondering if you uh, could perhaps uh, respond on uh, how big do you think uh, the role is of evolutionary psychology in uh, the cultural arguments uh, put against the European Union? Isn't it, hasn't the human race evolved to be only concerned about uh, factors of material well-being uh, and is culture not a way to a bond between different individuals when they perceive a common threat or purpose. Oh, I would like to see a PhD thesis on evolutionary biology and bioscepticism. That's your next book, Catherine. There, uh, the lady in the red top, please. Thank you. My question is: um, In which way do you think eroscepticism is linked to opposition to immigration? Do you think? Uh, I mean, is there a linear relationship, or again, the picture is more? Uh, nuanced. Thanks. Thank you. Now the panelists are telling me they can't remember any more questions, so I'll stop here. Uh, Simon, why do you go first this time? Oh, geez, thanks. 
Ulrika? Uh, was it Ulrika? Yeah. I, I mean, this is absolutely right, and I, I, what you say, I mean, it, it's a very simple, easy way to, to characterize, you know, open versus closed. Or, but I think it's more to do with people who are having, have real potential opportunities with the way the world is heading and people who feel their opportunities are being closed off. And I don't see it as kind of smart people against dumb people. It's going to university. You know, we, we have, Britain is perhaps some of, one of the worst societies where you, we have an exam passing class and an exam failing class. And you, my kids are teenagers, and they're going through this right now. And you know, it starts at the age of 15, and you're basically written off at the age of 15 to, to one of those classes. And, and We've designed that system, and, and I think it's a long legacy of that crazy education system that has led to these really deep divides that, have, that, that, that stem from that. And it's not about smart versus not smart. It's about what are the correlates of whether you pass at the age of 15. It's much to do with your parental income and the educational attainment of your parents. It's not to do with whether you're smart or not. Um, and so I think we, we have globalization and European integration together and the two processes are really closely interlinked because we're seeing similar processes happening not just across Europe, we're seeing similar processes in the United States and even in places like Australia where you have you know, populist parties and populist movements and a lot of that populism is people who feel like the world is moving away from them the opportunities for them are declining the opportunities for people like us are opening up and why is that fair and I didn't make a choice about this and I wasn't I've, I've been dealt the wrong cards through no fault of my own. And I think that's really the battle that we're seeing and, and whether, uh, some of the, what that leads to in people's preferences. So I've characterized that in a very kind of economic way because that's partly the way I think about this. And, and we then see this opposition to immigration and opposition to globalization that manifests from those kind of trends we've seen. For example, one of the things I find interesting is how data on individual inequality in a lot of advanced democracies, individual inequality is high, but most of that inequality rose in the 80s and early 90s and then has been flat from the early 90s. Whereas what's happened is growing regional inequality. Over the last decade, the big change has not been individual level inequality, it's been growing regional inequality. The difference in GDP per capita in the growing regions versus the GDP per capita in the declining regions has just grown enormously. And, and that those, re those regional contexts are what people are seeing around the place. They're seeing their local area in decline, fewer opportunities for me, and yet those guys down there, all the opportunities are coming to them. That's not fair. And I think that's really what is characterizing modern politics right now. Rather than, And we use the open versus closed as a shorthand, and you're right, it's not a very good characterization. Let me stop there and let others answer the more difficult questions. Tony, that's for you. I've just got to answer the question about Russia. <laughs> I have to, because, uh, and we're going to bring in Berlusconi again here, but when I, when I was uh, working in Rome, he, Berlusconi actually used to talk about this. Uh, many times I can hear him saying, Russia should join the European Union. So should Israel, actually, he used to say. Um, what, would have, what would have happened? Well, um, I mean, for a start, it would have had the by far the largest uh, delegation in the European Parliament. And that would have been interesting. Um, it, you can imagine what it would have sat around the table. I mean, to, to, take, to take a case of how awkward it would have been, I mean, when, when uh, NATO uh, arranged uh, kind of formal structures for Russia to sit at the table and have discussions with 
Italy and shit. The fact is, Russia thought it was too big. It wasn't just one state among several around the table. It, it, it saw itself as a unique state in a unique geographical position and you, the military power it had. And, and as a result, it, they, they, the conversations became increasingly difficult. Crises broke out on various areas of, uh, um, on the borderlands of the old Soviet Union between um, Europe and the US ally and Russia and all this made it very very difficult to sustain a kind of uh, working uh, structured dialogue with Russia and, the, and it would have, I think it would have been exactly the same in the year it's just it, it just is too large and you could extend the, these sorts of comments to Turkey frankly as well I mean the same thing would have happened it would have been the largest uh, the largest country and therefore in a position to Shape, um, shape things in the way that wouldn't have suited the other uh, many of the other member states. Just one quick point. I, I, by the way, I thought that the, I put your, your remarks about don't be too, you know, don't overgeneralise. I think it's very important, and I share the, your thoughts. A very quick last thing on Euroscepticism: is it linked to immigration? Well, yes. I mean, look, we can all see the connection between the. Brexit vote and the uh, opening up of the British labour market and the large numbers of people who came here. I mean, I think there is a connection there. But think of another country where there was very large immigration from both uh, other parts of Europe, but actually in, uh, very heavy non-European migration over the last 20 years, and that's Spain. Now, Spain fell into a pretty serious economic crisis uh, around 2010 to 12. Um, you got a you got unconventional political movements appearing Podemos, Ciudadanos, uh, but you didn't get a Eurosceptical movement. You didn't get an anti-immigration movement, and I think that shows that you know one one has to look at cases country by country to see how close the connection is between Euroscepticism and migration. It's not even across the board. Catherine? Yeah, so um, I'm, going to, I'm going to do two. Well, yeah. I wanted to also say something about the Russia, but about a different thought experiment, I think, which would be what if eastward enlargement would have not taken part as quickly or not as quickly after NATO? Because in some ways, when a lot of these processes happened in Russia, was as, as the EU and NATO arrived on its doorstep. So if that process would have been longer conditionality would have been longer. I don't know if that would have been feasible, but that's an interesting thought experiment. So how we would have, because that fueled a lot of this kind of imperial uh, notions within in Russia, and there's been very kind of good qualitative work on that. So, so that, that's also an interesting thought experiment next to if, if, if Russia would have been an EU member. Then with regard to the kind of Euroscepticism immigration and the evolutionary psychology, so actually uh, something, it's a report that I wrote with Isabel Hoffman, who's also here from the Batisman Foundation. What we try to look at is what's actually the mechanism in driving this? Because a lot of people argue also when it is about, and that was the question before, about open and close, that this is about values. This is about core fundamental values in which people differ. They might come from education and so on, but what we found is a lot of it is about anxiety. It's about fear. And that's not necessarily linked always. It can be, but it's not always linked to a value. So it's an idea of loss of control. It's an idea of having reduced social status. It also shows that it can be economic and cultural at the same time. Those things become extremely fused. 
But what in that way is quite striking and what will be interesting to see is what Macron is trying to do indeed, and we've talked about that a lot, about the, the, the wording of protection, of using the EU as a fortress. And therefore, the Eurozone crisis, I think, was striking because people exactly didn't see it like that. Because the Eurozone crisis was supposed to help us against this kind of... And then actually, it became a sovereign debt crisis, and it, and it actually weakened us rather than strengthened us. For a lot of people, actually, it, it added on to that anxiety level. So the question now is, you know, can the EU, and can it kind of reframe itself, and Macron is trying to do that, as a way in which it can protect against, indeed, the kind of, you know... The, 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 the vagarities of, of, of kind of globalization, but also how it can kind of deal and, and, and get a sweet spot between this idea what kind of Danny Roderick calls the trilemma of like the state, democracy, and the market. And I think this is a much, and I would, I would kind of underline also what was said before by Sam, this is a much longer process in which we find in many other places, so social psychologists, sociologists, a lot of them are finding that this is a lot about people feeling under pressure, feeling that they need to kind of perform, that they uh, are, that like very early on life chances get Get, get determined, and that was a slight break of this kind of post-war generation in which so much was possible. And I think in some ways, I, I don't do that type of work, but it would be interesting to see is how these different processes are interlinked and how a kind of more of a discord of, of protection and, and, and kind of a safe haven could help. But I, I guess in that way, the EU is also dependent on, on events that, 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 that happen to it. And the Eurozone crisis, of course, kind of proved the point in a different way. So I, I do think that kind of cultural explanations are interesting, but we really need to kind of look very careful in what it is about people's identities or what it is about people's fears or people's anxieties that matter. And those, I think, are, can be both economic and cultural, but this idea that this is value-based opposition towards immigrants, I haven't seen so much evidence that at the micro level that holds. Um, you know, so, so in that way, we just need to really, really kind of look at that more, you know, context-dependent, but also in terms of very specifically in what the actual psychological mechanisms are that, that, that drive that, that level of uncertainty or anxiety. Uh, building on that, I was going to tell a little story about a, one of my undergrads wrote his dissertation, funny dissertation, a few years ago. He's from Oldham, outside Manchester, and he wanted to write his dissertation on why in some of these towns around Manchester people voted for UKIP and why in others they were carrying on voting for Labour when in all other objective criteria they looked equally as, as deprived. And he, he, he collected a lot of local uh, council election data and a lot of census data, and he showed that on average... The, the greater the levels of poverty or the older the population, uh, the larger the immigrant communities, the more people voted UKIP. But there was enormous variation. So some of these places still voted very strongly Labour and some of them really did vote UKIP. And he went and interviewed loads of local councillors to try and find out why this was. And it was a lot to do with whether or not the council was actually successfully carrying on to delivering local services and working. He said, in Oldham, it really felt like the high street was still there. They'd managed to keep the cinema open. And next door in Rochdale, the high street was boarded up and, and people felt like it was heading in the wrong direction. So he said, you know, it's like in Oldham we say it's shit, but at least we're not Rochdale. <laughs> so, but uh, that, I think, is a lot, you know, it's about the context, the optimism of the context, and whether or not you feel like it's more or less heading in the right direction relative to your expectations. And I think that's what's really key in your book, is about what your expectations are and whether you feel you're meeting or are going above those expectations or you're going well below it. Uh, so on that uh, note, uh, we have to uh, wrap it up, but I, I want to just, because um, 
ask a sort of final yes and no uh, answer of the question. I don't think we've had quite enough Brexit for my liking. Uh, so, so, Mike, so it's just yes or no, so it won't take long. And the question is going to be, given that we, it's the future of European integration, so in 20 years, do we have the EU? Do we have the euro? And is Britain a member of the EU? Yes, so just yes or no. Tony, yes, 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 or no, 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 or... Oh, no, there'll, there'll still be an EU. I'm not quite sure what form it will be, but there will still be an EU. I think there will still be a euro as well. Um, um, would Britain be part of... Not if the EU is in its present form, no, it wouldn't be. Yes, yes, no. <laughs> also, yes, yes, no. So uh, there's a bit of a status quo bias going on <laughs> on the panel. So um, uh, before we thank uh, the excellent audience and the uh, equally excellent uh, panel, uh, just two sets of good news. As I already said, the first set of good news is that this book is for sale out here to your left uh, on a discounted at a discounted rate of 30% off. Um, and if you can't quite decide yet, uh, there's also flyers you can take with that discount. Um, I don't get commission, so it's really because I think it's an excellent book. Uh, and the other good news is there are also, uh, same place, uh, drinks available, uh, I think, even for free, um, if you want to talk more about Europe and the future of European integration. So uh, let's thank uh, the panel and the audience. Thank you.